welcome to the Remain Faithful podcast. My name is Hannah, and I'm your host. On today's episode, we will be going through the composition of a biblical epistle, taking a broad look at Philippians, and emphasizing verses 11 and 12 in chapter 4. Thank you for tuning in today, and let's get started. everybody welcome back to another episode of the remain faithful podcast if this is your first time here welcome thank you so much for tuning in with me today it is truly such a joy to have you here listening hanging out for just a little bit i want to just tell you how excited i am to be here this is the fourth episode of the podcast i'm feeling so incredibly blessed by the reception and your guys' support of me so far. This is truly something that God planted in my life, and it has been such an honor to create and to work on this project for the time that it's been in production so far, and so I just want to say thank you, and I just want to let you know how grateful I am for your support. Today, we're going to be looking at a much smaller excerpt of scripture. For the past two episodes, we've been looking at bigger chunks of the Bible, and tonight... Um, We're just going to be taking a smaller look at a really tiny piece of scripture. We're going to look at only two verses. Now, I say that, of course, with the assumption that those two verses are, of course, contextualized by everything that precedes them, which, you know, is the entire book that we're going to discuss, but that's okay. Today, we're going to be looking at one of the most beloved books of the Bible, one of the happiest Pauline epistles. Yes, you guessed it, the book of Philippians. Today's episode is titled, Verses We Don't Highlight. In order to contextualize this episode, to explain the purpose of why I've created this content, it's really important that we understand the inspiration for where this idea slash episode has come from. So a little bit about me. I am a self-professing serial Bible highlighter. I'm an avid margin marker and I am not by any means shy with my pins and highlighters and colored pencils and if you've ever seen my Bible or if I post pictures of it, it has flags all over it and it is very written in, it is very beloved and I am not afraid of taking a pin down to the page. When I study, I write on everything that I see as important to the point where just about every page of my Bible is filled with notes quotes from other scholars slash theologians, some of my own thoughts, my own quotes, maybe some questions, maybe some vocabulary. I often write definitions in the margins of my Bible. But doing this has some pros and cons, of course, like with everything. First, it helps me see what I've read. And if I open a page of my Bible and I see notes on there, then I can see that I've went through that content, that I've dissected that part of scripture and I've had it turn into some sort of impact in my life. That also helps me if I'm reading it in another setting or if I'm explaining it to somebody. I have notes and they're at my disposal and I can see things that have impacted me that I've highlighted that I can use in maybe an evangelistic manner, maybe just in another time of personal study. But like I said, with everything, there are some cons to this and the most important one is the fact that when I write in my Bible, it gets really full and there's a lot of things that I'm able to pick out and I'm able to pin down, but there's always inevitably things that I miss and I'm often reminded of my own insufficiency whenever I study the Bible and I think that I'm doing a great job of pulling out the big pieces and really interpreting the meaning in the correct way and contextualizing it properly 
there's always points in my study where I will go to a page that I've written on and I will inevitably find a nugget of truth, um, a pearl of wisdom, something that is incredibly profound and lovely and beautiful that I just glossed over and I missed flat out. This happens a lot when I use extra biblical materials to help me study and these books and you know references online references will often cite scriptures and when i read them i have my bible open side by side and i'll turn really quickly to that page that book that chapter wherever it's citing and i will pull out a highlighter out of my pouch and get ready to highlight and probably like six times out of ten so a pretty high percentage of times like 60 percent of the time whatever verse that i'm going to look up in the bible is not highlighted and I'll have marks on that page and I can tell that I've read it and I can tell that I've dug at it and then the verse that I went to seek out at that specific time will be naked, right? It won't have any marking on it. It won't have any note or highlight and this happens all the time. I always think to myself, how did I miss that? How did I miss this one beautiful thing? I mean, there's dozens of beautiful things on this page, but how did I miss this? And my favorite example of this comes from a time that I was reading Colossians and I had studied the book of Colossians and I had taken detailed notes and my Colossians in my Bible is very pretty. It's really blue for some reason. I'd studied Colossians. I felt like I grasped it. And then sometime later, a few months later, I was reading a devotional and it cited a verse, Colossians 1.17, which I now have memorized to commemorate this event. And it says, he is before all things, and by him all things hold together. That incredible verse about Jesus and his character and the way in which he interacts with the world and the way in which he interacts with us was completely glossed over, and I had missed it. And I thought, wow, am I even reading my Bible? Am I even reading it if I'm missing these kinds of things? And so, this type of process that happens in my life really routinely is what has inspired episode four verses we don't highlight because we are going to look at some of the most glossed over verses in the entirety of the new testament they come to us from philippians chapter 4 and they are verses 11 and 12. you know philippians 4 13 but the way we interpret philippians 4 13 has to hinge on the way in which we interpret the verses that precede it so with all that in mind, let's take a look. So in order to get us started in this conversation, I'm just going to give a little bit of background information on the epistles. So epistles are essentially the books in the second half of the New Testament. They were essentially letters that were sent out by the apostles to the various church plans that they had created after the ascension of Jesus. There are 21 epistles in the Bible and Paul has written 13 of them. One important thing to note about these epistles is that he, Paul, didn't write them alone. He wrote them in conjunction with people named Timothy and Silas, and these were individuals that he often did missionary work with. The production of the epistles was essentially that Paul, Timothy, Silas, whoever he was working with on his particular missionary journey, they would discuss what they wanted to say, discuss the situation that surrounded a church or a group of people that were needing encouragement. They would hire a professional scribe after they had essentially hammered out what they wanted to say and the scribe would write down the letter and then the letter would be sent off with another one of their missionary teammates to be taken back to the church that it was initially intended for. One of the most important things about the epistles to understand when we read them is they were not meant to be read. 
They were meant to be heard, performed, enacted in front of a live audience because during this time, a lot of people couldn't read. They were illiterate. And so it was really essential that the message that Paul, Timothy, Silas, whoever was really writing the epistle, it was essential that they were going to be able to convey the message in a way in which people could receive it in their own lives. And so epistles have a general structure. There's an opening, and the opening is generally relatively short. It provides the author and the recipient of the letter. The next part that directly follows the opening is the prayer of thanks, and inside of this prayer, the author will provide the purpose of the epistle. The author will launch into the body of the text, and this is the meat of all of the epistles. This is the chapters on chapters of theology and various Christian ethic points and things that the author wanted to say to that specific church. So when you're reading an epistle, it's kind of difficult to stay on track with what the author is saying. Oftentimes they like to double back, they like to jump ahead, they like to change trains of thoughts, they like to reference things that might not be immediately apparent to us here in the 21st century, more nuanced information that was relevant to the church at that point in time, and so it's really easy to get lost in the sauce a little bit when you're reading the epistle from start to finish. But a really concrete way to stay on track and to continue to find the meaning and stay engaged with the material is to look for transition words. Typically, they're words like therefore. Really big, bold words that signify a turning point or a connection that the author is trying to make. Right after the body, there's going to be a conclusion, and the conclusion, of course, is going to wrap up the sentiment of the letter, give a well-wish to the people that it is being written for, and have the author sign off. So this is the general way in which the epistles are written, and this pattern is true for the majority of the epistles in the Bible. However, it's really funny because Philippians doesn't work this way. <laughs> of course it doesn't, right? That makes it so interesting for us. So now we're going to do a couple of notes on Philippians specifically in the way that it was written as one of the Pauline epistles. So this point isn't specific to Philippians precisely. It is something that is really important in the context of the entire New Testament, but we'll see a little bit later as to why we have to really consider it, especially with the church at Philippi. When you're reading the New Testament, it's always important to have the idea of the Roman Empire in the back of your mind. The context in which Jesus was alive and the disciples were doing their ministry was all happening underneath the blanket of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire, as we know, were really forceful individuals. They had a love for the military and for conquest and for pushing into neighboring territories. Their society was incredibly hierarchical, all the way from the top of the government down to the lowest of the low in the society and everyone within it had a distinct place. They were categorized, they were leveled as different subunits of people groups, essentially. And so the church in Philippi was in a Roman colony in ancient Macedonia, which is what we now know as the northern part of Greece. And Philippi was known for its patriotic nationalism as a colony. This is because it had a really important battleground significance. You can look into it more specifically, but essentially Philippi was situated on a battleground that was really important for the Roman Empire that helped them get a foothold, helped the progression of their nation, essentially. And so that part of 
Macedonia was really, really patriotic and they were really Roman right down to their court. The people who lived there, they had a lot of ex-soldiers living there. It was really highly colonized. And so naturally, there was a lot of persecution for people who went against the grain of the Roman culture that they found themselves so entrenched in. We can read about in the Bible, Paul creating the church in Philippi in Acts chapter 16, and it's actually one of the coolest stories in Acts, in my personal opinion. It is the instance where Paul and his teammates, his missionary teammates, get thrown into jail and they are praising the Lord in jail because even though they're being persecuted, the word of God is being made known and the name of Jesus is being exalted and they're praising in the jail. And then through this praise, the Holy Spirit breaks open the doors, cuts off their chains, and it is just a miraculous movement of God. And from this, the jailer who was stationed to watch over the prisoners that evening becomes immediately afraid because he knows that if the prisoners escape, it's going to be his life that's going to be taken into question because it was his job to keep an eye on them. And so he cries out after Paul, how do I become saved? And they say, you believe in Jesus. And from that night forward, the jailer and his family, they come into the community of God. They're baptized and with another God-fearing woman who was in Philippi at the time, whose name was Lydia, they start the church in Philippi. So after the church in Philippi is started, Luke, our beloved physician and the author, of course, of the Gospel of Luke, pastored this church for about six years, which is a pretty interesting Bible fact. In the letter of Philippians, it's really hard to pin down one core subject or purpose to which Paul was writing. Like I said briefly earlier, Philippians as an epistle doesn't necessarily have the concrete pattern, the flow of thought progression that is developed in the body. It's more sporadic. However, we do know that Paul was in prison during his composition of Philippians. And this letter gets delivered to the church of Philippi because the church had heard about Paul's incarceration and they had sent one of their members, whose name was Epaphroditus, to send Paul a care package, essentially, with a financial donation to him to sustain him during his time in prison. And Epaphroditus was also sent by the church at Philippi so he could take care of Paul while he was in this time. And so Paul's letter to the Philippians is a response to this gift. It's a response to this generosity displayed to him by the church of Philippi. And so out of that context, it could be concluded that this letter is a missionary letter. Another cool fact about the church at Philippi is as far as we know, the Philippian church was one of the purest New Testament churches. There are in a lot of other letters that Paul created and wrote for different bodies of believers there were issues within a lot of them specifically we can point to the corinthian church the church at corinth um, they had a lot of issues that paul was continually addressing in his letters to them however we can see in philippians that there is considerably less rebuke and a lot more of paul's individual personality pushing through as this was him naturally just writing a response to the church for sending him such a generous gift of the financial donation and the company of his friend Epaphroditus. So like I said, Paul during his composition of Philippians was in prison. He was imprisoned in Rome approximately 10 years after he had founded the church in Philippi. And that to me is so astonishing. 
10 full years. Wow. Just think about that for a moment. Even after 10 years of ministry and 10 years of pushing into other areas and reaching other people, he was still touching base and keeping tabs on the church in Philippi. I think about this and I map this onto my own life and I question how many people from 10 years ago in my life do I still keep up with that I'm not related to? And I think that's such a wonderful challenge for us to model Paul's example here to continue to love the people from our past, right? I think that's something that's hard to do in this day and age is to not look directly in front of you to the people who are here with you now, but to also take a quick little glance over your shoulder to the people who were with you and who were for you and supported you during various points in your life. And so that's one of my challenges to you guys for this week is to take a glance over your shoulder, remember who supported you, remember who still loves you, and to reach out and let them know that you love them as well. So we keep talking about the idea that Philippians is not written like a classic epistle, and so you're probably wondering, well, Hannah, how is it written? Well, I'll tell you. So it's written in vignette style, and a vignette is essentially a short little story. Vignettes are things you will commonly see on math problems, maybe on a physics question, maybe you'll see it in any sort of standardized examination. They're things that you tell to children, they're things that you use to create fables and metaphors and all kinds of various things and they're essentially short little compositions that have a central meaning. In the book of Philippians there are about eight vignettes and each of them has a different central theme that essentially revolves around one vignette that happens in chapter two. So very briefly, we're going to run through all of these small sectional breakdowns that we find in the book of Philippians. The first chapter one, verses one through 11, this is the opening prayer. This is when Paul is greeting the church at Philippi and he's giving them his initial thanksgiving and prayer for them as a church and as a people group. As we move out of verse 11 and into verse 12, that starts the second vignette, and Paul starts discussing his imprisonment in Rome. This vignette follows all the way through verse 26, and this is one of the core vignettes that we have to really get a grasp on if we're going to understand verses 11 and 12 in chapter 4. Paul discusses a lot of key topics in these verses. The first half of the vignette talks about a situation that was occurring during this time. So Paul, as we know, was in prison and there were people who would like to see Paul essentially fail and they are out and about preaching the word out of rivalry for Paul. But the miraculous thing that we see recorded in this text is that Paul takes no offense to this. Instead, he sees it as a glorious opportunity for the name of Christ to be furthered and exalted in different areas and different people groups. Additionally, we see Paul tell the Philippians that they should never be ashamed about anything, especially not the honoring of Christ with their lives. And then we get to verse 21, one of the most important verses in the book of Philippians, which reads, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Following on in verse 22, Paul goes on to say, now if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. And I don't know which one I should choose. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. 
but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that, because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. Paul in this section is essentially saying that there are two options, living and dying. If you were to live and to continue his life in the flesh, this would mean more fruitful work for the name of the Lord and for the kingdom of God. But if you were to die, this would mean getting his eternal salvation and getting to be with Jesus for the rest of his days, both of which are incredibly important, which is what he is essentially saying to the Philippians. But this attitude that Paul displays here is that he is willing to stay on earth. He's willing to stay and minister to the Philippians and minister to the people around Philippi and all of the surrounding areas in Europe and Asia, but he's also eager to go be with the Lord and to go for rest in paradise with the King of Kings. And this attitude is really important for us to understand what comes down the pipe a little bit later in chapter 4. This flows beautifully into verse 27 when the next vignette picks up where Paul begins to suggest and encourage the Philippians that they should take up this same to live is Christ attitude. He essentially wants them to recognize that Christ has transformed their lives and this transformation should be the driving force by which they love others and they serve the people around them. This vignette follows all the way through to chapter 2 verse 5 and then verse 6 starts up the next vignette which is essentially a poem that was written by Paul. If you look at this it's verses 5 through 11 and the title of this poem is sometimes called the Messiah poem. It is essentially a very condensed version of the gospel story, and it is the way in which Paul sees Christ. I won't read the whole thing, but I will pull out very quickly verses 7 and 8. They say, Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had become a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And so this poem is very beautiful. I highly recommend that you take time to dig down into this poem and develop a knowledge for yourself, the character of Jesus and who he was and who he continues to be. But this poem essentially sets up for us Paul's view of Jesus as someone to be highly exalted, Christ being someone that was completely humble and out of this humility is born someone that has all of the right in the world to receive the highest form of praise and worship imaginable. A couple of verses are skipped in this pattern of vignette storytelling, but we pick up the next one in verse 19 of chapter 2, where Paul begins to talk about two individuals in his life who he believes the Philippians should imitate. Individuals who he has observed their behavior and he's deemed them worthy of imitation. That is Timothy, who we've talked about briefly as being one of Paul's missionary companions, someone that he trusted very closely in all of his missionary work, and Epaphroditus, who, like I said, was the man who came and visited Paul to deliver the gift and to keep him company. One important thing that we can note in verses 19 through 30 is that Epaphroditus, upon arrival to Paul in Rome, became very ill. 
and he almost died in this illness. We can see this in verse 27 where it says, indeed, he was so sick that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him and not only on him, but also on me so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul's essentially saying that this man came to him so willing to serve that he almost forfeited his own life. This part of Philippians is included to provide a model of servanthood that the people at the church of Philippi should emulate in their daily lives. The next patch of text takes up in verse 1 of chapter 3 all the way through verse 1 of chapter 4. So the entirety of chapter 3 in Philippians is centered on one idea of following Paul's example as an individual, as a missionary, as a man of the Lord. He's recommending to the Philippians that they don't get caught up in the legalistic terms and the legalistic practices of individuals who are trying to sow seeds of disunity in their church. Paul, upon hearing about this rift that was being torn in their church by these individuals called Judaizers who were really pharisaical in their approach, really put a lot of stock in the law, he essentially says that any sort of human gain in the light of Christ, he has considered everything not of Christ to be a loss. Verse 8 says, More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them dung, so that I may gain Christ. Paul is essentially saying that anything that he had in human terms that was of a human value, he's considered to be a loss and he's considered it to be significantly less valuable than knowing the Lord. This loss of all things that he describes in verse 8, he has no remorse for. He's happy to let it go. He's happy to shed it so that he can continue to pursue the Lord in the fullness of God's glory. Paul continues on in chapter 3, urging the church at Philippi to recognize that their citizenship is not on this earth. It's not in a Roman colony. It's not as a body of believers in a specific church, that their citizenship is in heaven, and they should await the day when they get to meet their Savior in that glorious place. And then he follows that into chapter 4, where we have the final vignette where Paul challenges these individuals to live the example of a Christian believer. Once upon a time I heard the book of Philippians called essentially like a greatest hits of the Bible. I remember so distinctly from my childhood my mom had these CDs and they were like top 100 hits of every year and each year there would be some company that would take all of the best songs from that year and they would burn them onto a cd and they would sell it and so it would memorialize the top music from that year now of course we don't have cds anymore and we have spotify who just does this for us and so it's essentially a moot point in 2020 but Philippians reminds me of those CDs because so much of what we know in our Christian teaching and about our Christian ethics comes from ideas that are regurgitated out of Philippians. It's almost as if you're reading through it and you know it so well, you've heard it so many times, you could finish the second half of the sentence like it was a song lyric. 
This is especially true when we find ourselves in verse 4 of chapter 4, where it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Verse 6. Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Doesn't that just sound like a top hit? Like, doesn't that exactly sound like what your Bible study class has been telling you for the past X amount of years of your life, right? There's so much that is packed into these verses, verses four through nine is what I just read. And the goodness that is here is tangible. It is so significant for our lives. I feel like I could talk about this for an hour, go word by word, application by application but the point of me reading that to you is after you read all of that and it sounds so familiar and it's so warm and it's so cuddly verse 10 which says i rejoiced in the lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me doesn't really continue the flow right and this is why we have this gap in information about verses 11 and 12 before we hit verse 13 of Philippians chapter 4. If you continue reading verse 10, it says, you were in fact concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. Paul had said previously in Philippians, if you read it more carefully than what we've done here, that he had assumed that the church of Philippi had forgotten about him. In verse 10, he reinstates the idea that they had not, in fact, forgotten about him. They just lacked the opportunity to show that they were had remembered him and that they were still thinking about him and caring about him as a minister. And then we find ourselves at verse 11. So we've gone through the whole book of Philippians, piece by piece, chunk by chunk. We've looked at Paul's imprisonment in Rome. We've looked at his challenges to the Philippians and the ways in which they should apply Christian ethics to their life. And we find ourselves in verse 11 that says, I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with little and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. And here it is, you know it. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Another verse of scripture that works beautifully with this idea of contentment Paul is speaking about in these verses comes to us from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 which says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Verse seven, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. Paul is also the author of Timothy. And so it makes sense that the language from Philippians mirrors that in the language presented in Timothy. But essentially what Paul is saying in this section of Philippians, taken together with the ideas presented throughout the entire book is that there is no hardship 
that is too great for him to bear because he has learned to be content with only Christ as his possession, with only the Lord as his stronghold. When everything else has fallen away for Paul, his supports, as we've seen, that he assumed that the Philippian church had forgotten about him and he was alone, financial stability has fallen through his health. Paul is not young. He is not a spry teenager out doing the Lord's work fresh out of seminary school. He is an old man who has been continually brought to his knees by various stonings and beatings. He's been persecuted to just about the end of the earth. He's been on missionary work for what feels like decades. And he says in these moments that he knows the secret of being content. And that secret is godliness with the presence of Jesus permeating every second of your life. We see in these verses that his awareness of Jesus' love for him and his presence in his life gave him hope in his current situation and it gave him humility to continue to lean in to the Lord. I had previously read in chapter 3 verse 8 where Paul says that the only thing he is seeking to gain in this life is Christ and the only place he wants to be found is in him and the only righteousness he looks to behold is the righteousness of God not the righteousness of the law or of man and this type of faith is utterly miraculous. Paul's poverty has not been a true hardship for him because he's learned the secret of contentment of seeking the face of the Lord and these times of trial have been his greatest teachers. Oftentimes, and I find this so frequently in Christian circles, Philippians 4.13 is utilized to reinforce a triumphalist mentality that it is our own self-sufficiency that we accomplish. It is by our own merit, it is on our own strength that we succeed with only a sprinkle of Jesus strengthening us from time to time. But this is most certainly not so. We accomplish solely based on the grace of the Lord acting on our lives, pouring out on us. And Paul is saying that this power is the only thing that is able to sustain us through the unimaginable. Like I had previously gone through, Paul's sufferings are not small. And I don't want to minimize our individual struggles as people because it can be continually reinforced that our difficulties should not be trivialized because life is hard. But if you want to face facts, none of us have struggled the way that Paul has. None of us have gone to the links that Paul has to spread the gospel and to preach the word of the Lord and be persecuted for it so vividly. We just haven't experienced this type of difficulty. And yet we see in these beautiful verses 11 and 12 that Paul recognizes that his circumstance does not define his joy. If he's hungry, he will be joyful. If he is fed, he will be joyful. If he's in abundance or in need, it doesn't matter. None of it matters because he is 
in the Lord, pursuing his righteousness, doing his work, loving his people, and going after his glory and his glory alone. And it is out of this mentality that we find Philippians 4.13, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. In the first episode of this podcast, I referenced John chapter 15 because that is where we find the beautiful truths about remaining in the Lord. And John 15, 5 says, because without me, you can do nothing. And Paul is so critically aware of this. He recognizes that it doesn't matter what he does, because without the movement of the Lord, it is irrelevant. God's position and God's action in our lives is what determines our outcome and we can rest in this truth and we can live in this truth and we can know that the sovereign hand of the Lord is on us at all times so that we can accomplish in his name by whatever means he has provided us brothers and sisters this is the word of the Lord my challenge to you first and foremost is to read your bible in context philippians 4:13 is a verse that is born out of extreme trial and difficulty where the strength of christ is the only strength paul has it's not an additional add-on strength it's not a bonus it is the only thing sustaining him so my first challenge is to read your bible in context and to take every verse in relation to the verses that surround it And my second challenge is to recognize that your circumstance doesn't define your joy and it doesn't define your strength. Christ gives you strength and he will give you strength to sustain you through whatever he ordains that you must walk through. I encourage us to be joyful, whether in abundance or need. The secret of being content lies not with what we have, but rather in who we have and if you have jesus today this is a miraculous and fulfilling truth thank you guys so much for listening to this podcast i hope you enjoyed it if you did please let me know and until next time remain faithful if you enjoyed this podcast we would be grateful if you subscribe to the show so you can be notified when new episodes are released If you'd like to connect with us, you can find our Instagram page at Remain Faithful Podcast, or you can head over to our website at remainfaithful.org.